Now, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Thank you for standing as we open the Word of God together. And I'm going to read uh, verses 6 through 10. We'll kind of look at the rest of the chapter there as well. Starting this new series, as we start the new church year, I want to be an encouragement to all of you who are serving in this church family, which should be all of us, uh, but also want to be an encouragement here for your family to stay the course, for you as a Christian to stay the course. We're going to talk about being unwavering in some things that we believe God's called us to absolutely not compromise because it's our DNA, it's our mission, it's our calling. So if you found your place there, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writing to his young protege Timothy says, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed, but have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness, for the training of the body has a limited benefit some translations say it profits some, profits little, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. In fact, we labor and strive for this because we have put our hope in the living God, or as we sang a moment ago, in Christ alone, who is the Savior of everyone, especially those who believe. Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement, this strong word of admonition, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us insight into the truth of this word today, and we pray that we would be challenged to stay the course, to be unwavering in all of our commitments to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated this morning. Well, this series is titled Unwavering. After finishing up uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, we made kind of a natural transition as a church this fall, and it's time to renew, to revisit, perhaps for many of us to rededicate, to recommit ourselves to those most important areas of life. Now, here as a church family, we've discovered that we have about seven core values, so we will walk through each of those core values today focusing on the value of the Word of God itself, the, the role of Scripture. And I'll make some more comments about that as we work our way through the text. But let me ask you this. Have you got some things in your personal life, in your private life? Do you have some things in your home? Do you have things maybe in your workplace, your business, and other areas where you do life that you say, hey, these will not be negotiated? These truths, these principles, these standards will not be compromised. We will live by and build our lives on these principles. Do we have some things that are non-negotiable? Now listen, I believe that the church of the living God has to change in areas when it comes to traditions, when it comes to things that are not based on Scripture, when it comes to being able to connect with people in the community. Uh, churches have changed in and, and style, and churches have changed in the way they communicate certain things, and some have become more innovative. I'm not bothered by those changes in the least bit. 
However, I will say this, when they begin to tamper with what matters most in the Word of God, then they're changing things that God intended never to be changed. What are those things in your life that you value so much that you will not compromise? James Patterson and Peter Kim kind of shocked this nation when they reported the results of a survey in a something they published called The Day America Told the Truth, back in 1991. Now, that seems like a long time ago now. The first time I ever uh, kind of reported or used these statistics, it was fresh. And so I'm not sure how much things have changed since. But it's scary enough to look back what people said in 1991. So we'll start there. 25%, by the way, they, they were asked this question, what would you do for $10 million? What would you be willing to do for $10 million? And with yes or no answers, 25% said they would, they would abandon their entire family for $10 million. Some of you are looking at me like, it depends on what day of the week you ask me that. They would abandon their church. 25% said they would also abandon their church for $10 million. I was glad to see that 75% said they wouldn't. Uh, they would become prostitutes for one week 23 percent said they would do that for one week for 10 million dollars would give up their american citizenship 16 percent for 10 million dollars the same percentage 16 percent said they would leave their spouse for 10 million dollars would withhold Testimony and let a murderer go free, 10%. Said for $10 million, they would withhold testimony if it meant a murderer go, through, go free. But here's what's even scarier. 7% said they would be willing to kill a total stranger if they could get away with it and receive $10 million. 7%. 3% said they would put their children up for adoption for $10 million. Some of you, again, are saying, depends on what day of the week you ask me there. Well, what do we value? What is it that not for $10 million, not for all the money in the world, would we compromise this belief, this standard? You know, as a church family, we say we have some core values. We see it in our DNA. We see something that uh, is not just practical, but we are idealist about. Every year... Uh, especially every four years during a presidential election, you find out that some people have certain things that they, they vote for or they stand on because it is practical. And then there are those of us who say, listen, it's not a matter of what's practical or what works. We are idealists. We stand on this. We will not compromise this, not only because it's practical, but even when it's not practical, it is an ideal, it is a standard that we will not compromise. And so as a church, we have said that as we've looked at our biblical mission, as we look at our calling, we call these core values. And I'm just going to, in our introduction here, just summarize those core values, and then we'll take one week with each one of those values, beginning with the first one today. But let me remind you, the first one is that we are big on the Bible. Specifically, we've said we are committed to biblical authority and doctrinal integrity. That is foundational for all of the rest. Last fall, when we kind of did the series Pass It On, talking about those things that we're to pass on to the next generation, we also started with a belief in 
the Scriptures, saying that the Bible has to be something that we pass on because it's foundational for all other beliefs. If the Bible's not true, how do we know we can believe what we believe about Jesus Christ himself, heaven and hell, eternity, and everything else that we say that we believe in? So we're big on the Bible, committed to biblical authority and doctrinal integrity. Secondly, we love God and enjoy worshiping him. We sang it a moment ago, but it's all about him. It's all about Jesus Christ. So we are committed to enthusiastic worship and celebration. Number three, we still believe in the power of prayer. And so we are committed to pray. And today when we conclude the service, I want to call on people to continue to pray as Pastor Ben led us, as Toby led us praying earlier. Pastor Ben reminded us to pray for the people in Houston. The president has said this is a national day of prayer. The church didn't need to be reminded of this. At least we shouldn't be in need of a reminder to pray for the people in Houston and around the world that need the love of Christ demonstrated through the people of God. Number four, we are all about family. We are committed to ministry to the whole family. And especially as a church, we want to engage the next generation but not disenfranchise those who have laid the foundations before us. Number five, we're committed to small groups. Small groups are how you really connect and so we're committed to providing effective small group ministry. And I'm going to call our church this fall to kind of step up in our commitment there to small group ministry. We're committed to evangelism and missions. Why? We believe our neighbors, the nations, and the next generation need Jesus. That's the greatest need. Listen, what's going on in Houston today? People need a lot of things, a lot of material things. And one reason I want to encourage you, if you feel blessed and, and broken and you feel like you need to give to those needs, they have a lot of needs, but I would encourage you to give through a channel like Southern Baptist Disaster Relief, who's kind of gotten a name for doing a lot with a little, but, but what comes through that organization all goes and is given in the name of the love of Jesus Christ to communicate the gospel because their greatest need is still Jesus. And then number seven, that God is worthy of our best. We're committed to biblical stewardship, taking our time, our talent, our resources, and realizing all that we are and all that we have is a gift from God, and what we do with it is our gift to Him. And so we're committed to biblical stewardship, knowing God is worthy of our best. So the first commitment, commitment to the Scripture, being big on the Bible is foundational for all the rest. If we do not have that standard in place. We have no support for all of the other standards, all of the other things that we believe and value as a church. That's why we want to, in our summits, uh, Pastor Ben mentioned uh, uh, having a uh, number two summit luncheon coming up soon, but in our, when we get into our middle and high school grades, we want to teach biblical apologetics. We want them to know not just what they believe, we want them to know why they believe it, we want them to be able to stand upon it and defend it. Our vision statement under our first core value as a church says this, and by the way, I pray that this is more than just a, an appeal that we place on our website to, to say that we believe it, I pray that it's something that you will allow to become a conviction in your heart that you will share in its implementation, and that is that Trinity will continue to be a place where the Bible is preached and taught with depth, conviction, and relevant life application as the primary means of developing consecrated disciples of Jesus Christ. 
That's our desire. That's why I pray that you're here, that you truly desire, when, whether you are here for small groups, for our time of worship today, I pray that you're here because you truly want to become a consecrated, set-apart, fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. Growing in grace and growing in the Word of God. Now, by the way, if, if you're not here for that reason, I'm still glad you're here. You're welcome, and, and I pray that you feel welcome, and I pray that you feel loved. But I, I don't pray that you'll feel comfortable. I don't pray that you'll be comfortable being here and not have a desire to be a consecrated disciple of Jesus Christ. I pray that the Word of God and the Spirit of God will make us uncomfortable until we are walking in step with the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God in His will. So that's our desire. We have a vision, it goes on to say, for consistent and quality training for current and future Bible teachers and preachers who will reproduce themselves by rightly dividing the word of truth. We have a vision for a pulpit and a small group ministry that engages real life and presents a community, a nation, and a world with the truth of the gospel and the precepts of the Bible. Listen, as a church, we do what we do because we value what we value, and we value what we value because we believe what we believe. So it still comes back to the Bible. For your family, you will do what you do because you believe what you believe and you will believe what you, because you value what you value and you will value what you value because you believe what you believe. And if you want to see your children grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you want to see them have something to build their life on, to have a passion for life, a passion for living, and to be on mission for Christ, then you will also want to be that kind of leader that will instill these truths in them. And so as we read this text, it reveals how the Bible is to be preached and taught with depth and conviction and relevant life application. It explains how Timothy, as a young pastor, was to lead the church to develop consecrated disciples of Jesus Christ. How was that happening? What was, what was Paul, uh, Timothy's father and mentor in the faith, what was he teaching Timothy that his church needed to embrace, that we need to understand, that we need to apply in our hearts and lives, and that our church needs to be known for without apology that we stand upon. It all comes back to that first core value, being big on the Bible, that we are unwavering in our commitment to the Bible as God's authority, as God's standard. First of all, he points out that Timothy leadership must be personally equipped in the Word. Those in leadership in the church must be personally equipped in and with the Word of God. In verse 6, he uses the word nourished. I, I like the King James because it pulls out a Greek prefix here, and it says we're to be nourished up. We're to be built up or nourished up in the faith. The, the English Standard Version says trained. It has the idea of working your way up through a process, almost like getting an education. We need to be moving from one level to the next and then to the next. We need to have a system in place to help people be nourished up in the Word of God. So he says you've been nourished in this. If you're pointing these things out, you will be a good servant of Jesus. Nourished by the words Verses 8 and 9, it kind of parallels here uh, physical exercise. He says, for the training of the body 
has limited benefit. Now, this word training is not the same word for nourished. It has to do with, it, it's, it's the, in the Greek, it's gymnasia. We get a word gymnasium from it. It's like, man, you've got, a, you've got workouts in place to be trained physically. And he's saying it would be more important that you have those workouts in place to be trained spiritually. He says that has limited benefit physically, but godliness, your spiritual training in the Word, is beneficial to in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life that is to come. What is he saying? He's saying, look, people are, people are uh, athletics, athletes are staying in shape. They have a workout regimen. They have an exercise regimen, and that's important that they take care of themselves, but that only profits a little. That's only a little bit important. He says, what's more important is your spiritual life and your training in the Word. You need to be nourished up, built up in the Word of God. And it's for this end, when he says in verse 10, we labor and we strive for this. He's talking about that being built up in the Word of God. That you know the Word and you know why you believe it. And you're able to extend that on to other generations. He goes, it's for this that we labor. In other words, it's, we're not being lazy with the Word of God. It's hard work. We're spending time and we're understanding it. And he says, and it's for this we strive. The understanding and the communicating of this Word, he says, that word strive, agonizomai in the Greek. We agonize, man. We we work at it so hard that those people who are, those athletes who agonize to become stronger physically, they don't hold a candle to the kind of agony we put ourselves through to understand and to communicate the Word of God. We've got to be personally equipped in the Word. Timothy says this is expected of leaders. This is expected of influencers. If leadership is influence, if leadership is the ability to influence people toward a desired end, he says you're going to have to work hard at it, and you're going to have to work hard at being nourished up and trained in the Word of God. In chapter 3, he will talk about the importance of leaders, those who are in spiritual leadership, those elders in the church, were to be apt to teach the Word of God. If they were going to hold a place of leadership, they needed to understand the Bible, know what it says, know how to explain the Scriptures. They needed to be, in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul's next letter to Timothy, he would say that they needed to be thoroughly equipped. They needed to be able to rightly divide the truth, the Word of God. And we've watered this down. In the modern church in America, we have so watered this down. We've become, in some circles, a play, people with no passion whatsoever. And in other places, we become a people that have that Romans 10-2 religious passion without knowledge. And Paul said, look, there, there were people that had a lot of passion. There were people that had no passion. But in Romans 10-2, there were people with a lot of passion, but there was no depth. And so it was kind of, kind of the, the, the positive thinking, power to positive thinking, or, or preach it loud, draw a crowd kind of thing but they weren't digging deep into the Word and the words of God. And so they had religion without zeal. Zeal is needed, but he says they needed to have substance. It's easier, and I could get in trouble for saying this, it's easier today in America to become an ordained minister of the gospel than it is to become a public school teacher. 
Because if you're going to teach in the public or private school for that matter, or homeschool, if you're going to teach math or science or social studies, you've got to go be trained in those things. For years you will be trained in those things. But, and, and I believe in the autonomy of the local church, but because of the autonomy of the local church, we'll see people that are placed in ministry before they've had time to study the Word of God and be prepared for the calling God has on their life. And I'm not just talking about degrees. Listen, any Bible college or seminary degree in 69 cents will buy you the big drink at Kangaroo. Those degrees aren't worth anything if it's not Acts chapter 4, verse 13 kind of Remember the disciples, they were ordinary, uneducated men, except they took note of something about them. Remember what they took note of, those, those early disciples, now the apostles? They took note of Peter and John and said they had been with Jesus. They, might, they may not have had a formal education, but for three and a half years, day and night, they walked with the school of Jesus Christ, walking with him, learning from him as Jesus expounded the scriptures and explained all things concerning who he was and what he was about. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and turned loose. But it was important that they have that time of being trained in the word. So many times we abuse this word. We manipulate this word. We twist this word. Timothy was told not to do that. There was a Scottish doctor in Great Britain by the name of Ian Patterson. He was lying to patients who were coming to be examined, and, and, and he was saying they had cancer in different places when they did not have cancer, and charging them extravagant amounts to remove cancer that wasn't even there. And when the people found out 17 cases he was charged with where people felt like they had been mutilated when they didn't even have the cancer, and so when we don't know, when we don't understand these things, there are people that are taking the Word of God and twisting it and creating all kinds of false religions or manipulating or sometimes mutilating people spiritually because they're mishandling the Word of God. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, but it's to be used as a scalpel to bring healing and a sword against the works of the enemy, the devil himself. In so many places... We haven't emphasized the importance of leadership being equipped with the Word. Howard Hendricks and his Sunday school training material said this about Sunday school teachers. The day you stop learning is the day you stop teaching. When you're not a student of the Word, when you're not learning these things, you don't have anything to offer anybody else, and I pray that we'll bring up a generation of people who can teach and preach and proclaim the Word of God because they're saturated with it, not only here on Sundays, but in their homes, in their personal life. Leaders, pastors, ministers, parents, teachers, all who desire to influence must be equipped in the Word. So he says, Timothy, it starts with your nourishment. You're being trained in the Word. Then it moves, number two, to the fact that lessons must then be publicly explained from the Word. You've got to take what you learn privately. You've got to take what you've been taught from others, and you've got to proclaim it 
and the sound of everyone who will listen. And so in verse 6, he says you need to be faithful to point out these things. Some translations say explain these things. In verse 13, he says you need to give yourself to the public reading, public exhortation, public teaching. Get this before the congregation. Get it before the community. Know your stuff. Know what you believe, why you believe it. Know what it says, but then take it and proclaim it to others that they may know what it says. Someone had offered it to Timothy. Verse 6 talks about he had been a good steward of the teaching he had received. Paul had already explained, Timothy, you know you got this from your mother and from your grandmother, so church, it started in the home. He didn't hear it from the apostle Paul first. He was established in the word of God in the home first, and Paul built on that foundation that had already been established. Then he was to point these things out to others because he had received them. He was to give himself to the public teaching of these biblical lessons. For some in here, it's time to step up and do that. Dad, it's time to step up and lead with the Word of God. Mom, it's time to be sure your children are saturated with the Word of God. We've got some high school students in our church that need to step up and be leaders in their school and be leaders in their youth group. We've been blessed as leaders have come up through our church and many have gone on to other places and now they're being salt and light in those places. But it's time for a new generation to step up and say, we'll be those leaders. We'll take responsibility to know and understand and make very public the lessons of Scripture in life. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 says, by the time you ought to be teachers, you still need someone else to teach you the basic principles of the faith. The time you should be on strong meat, the meat of God's Word, it says you're still on milk. You're still babes in the faith. And so I know I'm talking this morning to many who need to say, this morning I am going to step up and be a student and a person who proclaims publicly the principles and precepts of God. I'm not going to be shallow. Verse 7, when he says not to give yourselves or have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Some translations say old wives' tales. It was a a first century connotation of some older women who didn't understand what they were talking about, that they had certain superstitions that they had always believed, and they'd sit around and say those things. And he says, don't give in to that silliness and that shallowness. In verse 10, again, he comes back and says, there's a difference in what the Word of God does. Says we, in fact, we labor and we strive for this because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of everyone. Doesn't mean, this is not universalism, by the way. It's not saying that everybody is automatically saved because Jesus died for our sins on the cross. Specifically, those who put their faith experience the salvation of being born again. He says, especially of those who believe Why? Because they've had the born-again experience. They've got a home in heaven. But he says, everybody's been a benefit of the goodness of God's revelation in this world. And so we need to be students of that revelation and proclaim it to the people around us because Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so in verse 11, he says, you need to command those are the imperatives of Scripture, command and teach, explain why. 
Someone this past Wednesday night in their Bible study said, because I said so is not going to last but so long. We need to teach them what to believe, but why. We need to explain it. Explain why we believe what we believe. Give them the details. Help them to understand it. Help them to make relevant life application. Not just how was your day at school. How do you respond to things according to the Word of God in your daily life? This ability to trace the character back to the principles and precepts of Scripture saying, here's some things, remember, we don't compromise. And then finally, if we're going to do that, now, let me tell you why most of us, we, we, we don't want to publicly proclaim what we already know God's teaching us in Scripture. Because if we publicly proclaim it, now all of a sudden everybody's going to hold us accountable, right? If I say, man, I, I believe this word, here's what I believe, here's why I believe it, and I'm going to stand on it, then they're going to expect us to actually live it out. And so finally he tells Timothy, Listen, life must be practically exemplified. You've got to be an example. You've got to live according to the Word of God. And so you've got to live it out. If you're going to preach it, if you're going to say you believe it, he says you've got to live it, live it out. And so in verse 12, a favorite verse of mine, going all the way back to my teenage years, he says, let no one despise your youth. Instead, you should be an example to the believers. And he gives him these areas through which to be an example. Now, keep in mind, Paul, uh, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5 that those who are in spiritual leadership, those elders in the church, are not to lord it over. They're not micromanaging people's lives. They're not being manipulated. He says, don't lord it over them as the Gentiles do, but be examples to the flock. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 17, we're told that the, the, the pastors are to be an example, and if they don't live what they preach, then they're to have no spiritual authority in the church of God. And so he says, Timothy, as a young pastor, as a young man, a lot of people may not look to you as an elder, you be an example to the believers. And he names some areas. He says, be an example in speech. That's not just his public proclamation of the Word of God, it's, it's how he carries on conversation in his daily pattern of life. And so if Timothy, as a young man, was proclaiming in Sunday one thing, but when his boy got up to bat at a Little League ball game, he was saying something else, then that speech could cause people to doubt the integrity of everything he was saying from the Word of God. If he was in the workplace and, and, and had the pressure from supervisors on one hand and other people he was responsible for on the other and that pressure caused certain words to come out of his mouth then that speech would be a bad example and proclaim louder anything that he could have ever said from the pulpit so all of us need to keep in mind we need to speak we need to talk like we're christians everywhere else not just on sunday morning so he says be an example in speech in conduct the way you live out your life, what you're doing sometimes is preaching so loudly people can't hear what you're saying. And he says, in love. We saw that this morning, the great commandment in our life group, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor and yourself. Love loudly. Let people see your love. They don't care what you know if they don't know that you care, so love them in a way that they know that you care. In faith. 
I believe Paul would say, Timothy, have that faith that I wrote to the church at Ephesus about. That I can do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ever ask or think. Show that you trust in me and depend on me. And then he says, in purity, Timothy, you live that consecrated life. You live that pure and holy life. There are things, Timothy, you need to abstain from. You need to keep yourself from. You can't be involved in sexual immorality on the one hand and say you're a child of God on the other. We've got a generation today of college students who claim to be Christians who say they know and love Jesus Christ and worship Him, but they say, Pastor, you know there's no way a college student can live sexually pure, so I am sure God understands And Paul would say, Timothy, you be sure to get the message across. We don't compromise our standards of purity just because the culture's compromising their standards of purity. You're to live holy and consecrated, morally pure lives before the world, practicing what you preach, that you really believe that the Holy Spirit's power and the Word of God in your life can cause you to live differently than the rest of the world lives. That you don't have to give in to those pressures. That we don't have to Drink alcohol just because everybody else is doing it. We can say, I'm different. I'm consecrated. I'm set apart. The Spirit of God and the Word of God is enough for me. It's more than enough. I have efficiency and sufficiency in Christ. So I said, be an example. We're looking for people to be examples. You know, ecologists were studying pelicans at Monterey Beach, California, years ago. And they noticed that Uh, these pelicans had been kind of handicapped by the fishermen that uh, along the piers all all, all around Monterey Beach area they were were taking the innards I didn't want to say guts but anyway they were taking the fish guts and heads and everything else and, and throwing it to the pelicans so much so that the pelicans in that area had forgotten how to catch fish because there was no need anymore they were just kind of being spoon fed it was just kind of being thrown out there and so they They forgot how, and so what the ecologists did to save the pelican population there, because later on, fishermen, there started being other needs, commercial needs for fish heads and guts. I don't know what those commercial needs could possibly be, but there were other needs, so they quit feeding the pelicans. And so the pelicans started starving because they didn't know how to fish. And so they went further south in Southern California and they brought some of their cousins (laughs) they brought other pelicans that they had captured and turned them loose in the area and those pelicans showed them how to do it they showed them how to catch fish and it eventually actually caught on the pelicans that were malnourished began to fish again they began to do things again listen we can point our finger in the face of a community, in the face of our children and everybody else, and say, you ought to do this. But if we don't model it for them, if we don't demonstrate it with the example of our life, they will not get it. They will not understand. What did Paul say to the church at Corinth? Remember the church at Corinth? They were all caught up in all kinds of sin and immorality and things that Paul had to just kind of get in their face and say, man, you got to cut this out. This is all, I can't believe you're living this way. He would, in chapter 11, say, imitate me. Follow my example as I imitate Christ. You ever think about how many people are watching you? Some of you this morning may be saying, I'm not a leader. Listen, I I quoted some statistics from the early 90s, from, from, from 1991, a little bit earlier. 
I remember in 1994, a song came out. And it came out just in time for me because I got married the year after the song came out and had my first child. We had our firstborn, Kent, two years after that. And the message of this song had begun to, to shape and change my heart. It was so powerful. Some of you will recognize the lyrics. And, it, and it's a prayer crying out because of a father needing God's help to be a father because his son was watching him so closely. Listen to these words. He says, i got to admit, I've got so far to go. I make so many mistakes, and I'm sure that you know. Sometimes it seems no matter how hard I try, with all the pressures in life, I just can't get it all right. But I'm trying so hard to learn from the best, being patient and kind, filled with your tenderness. Because I know that he'll learn from the things that he sees. And the Jesus he finds will be the Jesus in me. The chorus says this, Lord, I want to be just like you because he wants to be just like me. I want to be a holy example for his innocent eyes to see. Help me be a living Bible, Lord, that my little boy can read. I want to be just like you because he wants to be like me. Living it as an example. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for the word of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ it proclaims that there is a God who so loved us that he sent his son to die for the sins of the world. That your word says, especially for those who believe, for those who call upon your name, they can experience new life and salvation in Christ. Lord, then you give us your word as the instructions for that life, how to live it out. Help us to be faithful, to share it, faithful to live it. And as a church, as a family, as individuals, may it be that which we will not compromise. May we have an unwavering commitment to the Bible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.